All right, well, let's grab our Bibles and open them to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. As I stated last week, after finishing the book of Ephesians here on Sunday morning, I believe that the Lord just wanted to encourage us to help strengthen us in a time such as this. As we face the challenges that the world poses today, Father, I just ask, Lord, that you just work today mightily, don't you? Just ask God to work mightily in and through his word today. I think we all needed to be encouraged. And so we started just a small, brief few messages on enduring trials. And I pray that as we go through these passages, we would be able to glean from them the encouragement that the authors intended their original recipients to receive. As we started in the book of James last week, we found that James encouraged all of us to count it all joy when we find ourselves and fall into various trials. Today, Peter will remind us of a fact about trials that I think is very important for all of us to remember. And Peter used to remind his audiences often of truths that they already knew, but needed to be reminded of them often because of the circumstance that they found themselves in. So we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 1, one of my favorite books of the New Testament. And let us begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ, in whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Last week we began with a quote that I think is again appropriate to begin with this morning. The quote is, God tells us to expect trials. It is not if you will fall into various trials, but when you fall into various trials. Let me say that again just briefly. It is not if we will fall into various trials, but when we will fall into various trials. It is going to happen throughout the course of your Christian life here on this earth. It is inevitable. And as a result, 
we often get discouraged as we go through them because we often misunderstand their intention within our life. Trials are a needed component of the Christian life. Trials are needed to help conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Trials allow us to become the men and women of God that God has called us to be from the foundations of the world. It allows us to purify the faith within us, to help us persevere through the time in which we walk here on this earth. And yet so often we see trials as an impediment to our personal temporary joy here on this earth. But as you read through the New Testament, you find with certainty that the early church went through grievous trials from time to time. Often the life of a Christian was characterized by the trials in which they endured. We as believers in the United States of America have enjoyed a freedom from persecution. We've enjoyed a freedom from hostility. We've enjoyed the understanding that the foundation of our nation was laid within a constitution and a declaration of independence that allowed the individual the freedom to worship their God. It is something unique to the world in which we live. As Christians all over the world today still suffer at the hands of persecutors, they are arrested for their faith. They are jailed without any type of understanding of when they may be released. Some are physically beaten for their Christian faith. Some are reduced to humility simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But today we see the tides turning in America, don't we? We see things changing all around us where it doesn't look as if persecution may happen, but will happen eventually in our lifetime. I don't say this to be a doomsayers, but I do believe that part of my job is to speak of the reality in which we live. It may not be physical persecution, it may be intellectual persecution. It may be the, uh, the end of a cancellation, if you get my drift. But we see things changing. And as Peter wrote to the same group of people that James did, he says this in verses 1 and 2, this group of people known as the dispersa. Now there is debate about the identity of the dispersa, but I hold to the position that these were Jewish individuals who had become Christian, that due to persecution they were driven into the Gentile world. I believe that identity fits the best with what James and Peter both have written to them. Now, being Christians, we too can enjoy the writing and learn from what is being given to us here in this text. But let us understand that the people who are the original recipients of this letter were individuals that were completely displaced from their homeland. Of course, the Jewish nation centered around the revelation that God gave them of himself. They grew up in a time where they understood that there was one true God and he was monotheistic. There was only one to be worshipped. But as they went into the Gentile world, they discovered that soon they were surrounded by a plethora of various gods that were worshipped by the people. 
And the people were earnest about not offending any of these gods, even one that may be unknown to them. But not only did they find themselves in a completely different spiritual culture, but a material culture also. Many of them having to leave with the minimal amount of items that they could carry, were forced then to relocate around the world with barely the clothes on their back. Leaving their homes, leaving the security of their land, leaving the security of the Mosaic Covenant which they embraced their entire lifespan. And now they find themselves displaced, dispersed, dispersa, having to once again truly rely on the promises of God to sustain them as they move through this new world, as they've truly become strangers in a strange land. As the landscape continues to change around us, and it's changing rapidly, isn't it? You just can't keep up with it sometimes, can you? You just want to turn off the news and hope that it stops. I can't tell you the number of times that I've said to myself after scrolling through my news feeds or my Twitter account and saying, oh, what else could possibly happen? Don't even say that to yourself. <clears throat> I just don't get it anymore. There is so much confusion. We have been lied to so often we don't know who or what to believe any longer, can do we? We see that God is no longer reverenced in our nation any longer, but often is the butt end of a joke. We see that people no longer have an idea of the sanctity of life, and when we do try to protect life, we are told that we are limiting human rights, but the right of the child, I guess, doesn't exist. We see the inconsistencies. We see the double standard around us. And as we continue to grow in our Christian faith and God brings us out of this world and sanctifies Him onto Himself, it only gets stranger as we look around, doesn't it? So the way Peter thought that he could encourage these people is that he begins in verse 3 with a typical standard acknowledgement of the God in whom he serves. Now, this wasn't only a, a part of a New Testament letter. Those in the, uh, in the world, the Gentile world, often after writing their greeting and who the recipients were, they would often credit the God in whom they serve. So this was a natural format for Peter to follow as he wrote to these individuals amongst the Gentile world. And what he does for them initially in verses 3 to 5 is something that all of us need to hear this morning. And that is to be reminded of our eternal perspective in Jesus Christ. And more specifically, that we are reminded of the fact that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And that regardless of what happens here on this earth, that hope will never, ever, ever change. And it will guide you. It will sustain you. It will allow you security in an insecure world. As he talks about the new birth that we have in Jesus Christ in verse 3. This living hope 
bringing them once again to an eternal perspective. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The early church fully acknowledged the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It wasn't uh, something that they wondered about. It was a certainty that they acknowledged. We know that many, during the time of the early writings of the New Testament, were still living when Christ, uh, they saw and witnessed the resurrection. It was still known to them. The world saw it and acknowledged it. The Christian world saw it and acknowledged it that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the tomb. And as a result, Peter is saying that regardless of what temporarily happens in your life today, nothing will change the fact that on the third day, Jesus Christ stepped out of the tomb. Nothing. And this resurrection allows us then a living hope. It is not simply a hope of something that is still yet going to happen, though that is a component of it. We have all the promises and all the hope that those promises lead to that take us day by day, step by step through the world in which we live. And one of those hopes is this, that Christ promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That if we listen to his word and do it, it is like building our house, our life upon a rock. That when the storms of life come, our house shall stand. We have the promises that God will provide all of our needs according to his riches and, and grace. We have the promises that God won't abandon us, but has given us the Holy Spirit to walk with us through this world. It's a living hope. And though I realize that the, you know, it will climax at the re return of Jesus Christ or my death here in this world, stepping into eternity, into heaven for, uh, with the Lord, but each and every day of my life here on this earth, my heart and mind can be guarded by this hope and reality that we have. And notice that what Peter says, what provided this for us was the abundant mercies of God towards us. The abundant mercies of God towards us. He has begotten us. That is, we have been born again. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now, there were many pagan religions at that time that promised a new birth. But to obtain that new birth... The, the individual often had to observe certain rites and rituals for a period of time before that new uh, birth would be uh, merited or warranted within that person's life. Sometimes these individuals were required to go through an initiation period where they would be given some type of initiation and if they passed, then a new birth would be proclaimed upon them. But Peter says that our Lord laid himself down, suffered the cross, on the third day rose again to provide us that new birth. And if we will by faith embrace that hope, will embrace that truth, 
we then can enter into a new life, become new creations in Christ, and that old things have passed away and all things become new. And this then provides for us not only the peace that surpasses all understanding, the joy that is inexplicable, but also it provides for us a living hope to keep us going, moving us forward day by day. When everything else in this world may seem hopeless, there is always hope in Jesus Christ. Always. Using the resurrection from the dead as a fixed point in history that cannot be changed simply by the moving of time. This hope leads us to verse 4. The idea of what is known as an inheritance. This inheritance is described by words such as incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away but is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Abraham was led out of Haran because of a promise of inheritance. That God was going to provide a land for him and the people that would, of course, fulfill his descendants. And that through this people, the whole world would be blessed, of course, with the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ. To the Jewish people, inheritance was an extremely important part of their everyday life. And it would only make sense to me that as they had been displaced, as later they would discover the Romans at 70 AD destroying Jerusalem, and more specifically the temple, that the inheritance that they had been given by God appears to have been lost. But Peter writes to them saying, no, no, no. The inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ cannot be corrupted. It cannot be defiled. It will not fade away, but is secure for you for all eternity in Jesus Christ. That inheritance is the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Knowing that stepping out of this world and stepping into the next, we go from the temporary to the eternal. That we will be in heaven with our Lord for all eternity. Eventually, absolutely enjoying the new heavens and the new earth that God will provide for us. This inheritance can never be taken away. It can never be stolen. It can never be corrupted. When the word salvation is used in the New Testament, there were two strong connotations that we must assign with it. It often has to do with the issue of deliverance. As you remember, David would often write through the Psalms and asking God for deliverance from his enemies. That idea of deliverance, when it comes to this point of salvation, meant a physical deliverance from death, number one, And number two, it made a uh, political deliverance from the corrupt governments of the world. This is why, to the Jewish mind, it was so important for them to understand and to know that Messiah will reign over all the earth. Now, remember the objection to Jesus' first coming. The religious leaders were waiting for him to establish the kingdom here on this earth. 
when he appeared not to do that, they began to reject him immediately because they were in anticipation of a new zenith of existence under the Messiah, just as Israel existed under King David. What they didn't understand was the prophecies of the Old Testament clearly indicated that Messiah would suffer, but that also Messiah would be a victorious king reigning for all eternity. Not understanding that Jesus would fulfill part of that in his first, the suffering servant, and then be the reigning king in his second coming at his return. Let us understand that when they talked about salvation, it wasn't only simply to be given eternal life and to enjoy heaven where God is. It was also the freedom from the tyranny, the corruption of human government. That's very interesting to me, isn't it? Yeah, you would know what I'm thinking. That didn't come out quite the way I anticipated it. It's very interesting when you think about it in its perspective. One of the things I have heard now for the last three months over and over and over again is the astonishment over the depth of corruption in our institutional systems here in America. And one day we will be freed from it all as Jesus Christ will physically reign from Jerusalem, eventually reigning for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So let us not only look forward to the physical deliverance from death, which is huge, the last enemy in which Jesus Christ defeated, but let us also embrace the idea that we also look forward to the moment in time where true righteousness reigns. There will be no more deception, no more lying. It says that he'll reign with a rod of iron at that time. Meaning in the millennial kingdom, which I believe we find outlined for us in Old Testament passages and a given example of in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus Christ will reign physically from Jerusalem for a thousand years. I believe that that's exactly what he will do. So when they talk about this salvation, think of the recipients of this letter from Peter. How much they would have said, oh, our inheritance is secure in Jesus Christ. It's uncorruptible. It's, uh, it cannot be defiled. It doesn't fade away. It's held for us, reserved for us in heaven. Have you ever gone on a vacation and realized that your mom and dad tried to be spontaneous? Only to take you down to Florida, drive you all the way there. We talked about the road trip conditions last week. I'm still in counseling for those. <laughs> but only to arrive in Florida, not knowing that it is spring break week. And that the spontaneity of my mom and dad led to them just simply packing up the car and going, we're going to be spontaneous. I guess they wanted to bring new zip into their marriage and so forth. And here we are driving down and then we got to Tennessee. You know the whole story. It's the halfway mark and it just hurts, okay? It hurts even to think about. Only to get down there and find out that the hotels are full. And we're going up and down, up and down, looking for a cancellation. 
My mom and dad being, well, that, that's surprising. There's so many hotels. Yeah, it's called spring break, you know. It's amazing what an incredible beachfront look, or beachfront view you can get from the car overnight. This is not something we have to be concerned about concerning heaven. You're not going to get there, and Peter standing at the gate. Well, okay, yeah, Mark, Mark, I don't see a Mark. Uh, who did you reserve with? Uh, Travelocity? Um, okay. Um, yeah, we, mm, that discounted rate. Mm, yeah, Mark, let's see. Um, come back in about a week. Mark just sitting there. Reserved for us. To hear those words as we enter in before the Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the presence of your Lord. And this is the way that he began to encourage them. But verse 5 is the icing on the cake. In verse 5, we are reminded that it is the power of God that holds us in this relationship. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is so encouraging that Jesus said to those in whom he was confronted by in John chapter 10, that nothing will ever snatch you out of his hand. And if that's not good enough, nothing will ever snatch you out of my father's hand. Because I'm a frail human being. I'm often confronted with worry, anxiety, fear, and doubt. But what I can be assured of by faith is that if I embrace Jesus Christ by faith, I am held by the power of God kept in that power for salvation. Because when I am weak, He is strong. When I am faithless, He is faithful. And even though my circumstances may move me to doubt the goodness and the love of God, God is holding me in His hand during those times and He won't let go. What an assurance that is. What an incredible thing to be held by the hand of God. I may have shared this story before, but years ago, I became very ill as a little boy. The doctors didn't know what was wrong. I don't think they ever discovered what was wrong. I personally thought it was the spam that my mom fed us that night. But I don't know what led me to be taken by ambulance in the middle of the night to the hospital as a little boy. And I was so scared. I still remember it to this day. It's overwhelming. Everybody looking at you, you know, and not recognizing a face amongst them. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I was probably under six years old, but still remember it clearly. And as the doctors were looking at me, I was in so much pain and I had such a high fever. I felt lousy, terrible, but I was terrified by everything that was going on. And then all of a sudden, it appeared as out of nowhere, I felt someone take my hand. It was my dad, and he said, I'm right here, I'm not going anywhere, I'm right next to you. And I remember instantly feeling comforted by that 
just my dad holding my hand and was able to weather the various tests that were being performed and so forth. Well, sure enough, after becoming a parent myself, my daughter, as a little baby, became very sick. We took her to the emergency room in the middle of the night. And as the nurses and everything were looking over her, we could hear her crying from a distance. And I remembered what my dad had done for me, and I held her hand, and she stopped crying. Sometimes we just need God to hold our hand as we go through the trials in life, but he does us one better. He says, I'm not going to hold just your hand. I'm going to hold you, period. And nothing is going to take you out of my hands. I don't care what you experience. I don't care what you go through. I am always with you every step of the way, and it is my power that is holding you. Because I am the author and the finisher of your faith. The work that I have started in you is the work that I will complete in you. And how assuring that is that in trying times such as these, as the trials mount and the difficulties occur and the tribulations continue, to know that we are in our Father's hand and nothing, nothing will take us out of those hands. But after reminding them of their eternal perspective, let us see here that he then proceeds in verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. The fact is of your eternal perspective. But he acknowledges clearly and doesn't in any way diminish the pain or the suffering that the trials uh, are bringing upon them and that they are experiencing through them. Notice what he says when he says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. That you are grieved by various trials. I think it is interesting that these verses precede what he has just told us about being in the hand of God. The word grieve there is severe. It is the same Greek word that is used of Jesus grieving in the garden. It is the word used when he is grieving the night before his crucifixion. In Matthew 26, 37 and 38, Matthew writes, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly, excuse me, sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Even Jesus needed someone at that moment. He wanted John and Peter to be with him at that moment. To just simply sit with him as he went through the agony of the knowledge of what was going to happen the next day that led him to that marvelous prayer in John 17 between him and the Father there in the garden. The seriousness of the trials that we go through are never to be diminished. They are meant to be acknowledged. One of the worst things that we can say to someone going through a grievous trial is simply get over it. Get through it. Because often we are pained by the experience in which we are going through. 
And it's often at those, at those moments that well-meaning people will say some of the worst things that they can say at that moment when simply sometimes the best thing that we can do is just sit with someone and say nothing. And just let them know that we are there. As Jesus said, Peter, John, just be with me tonight. Sometimes that's what people need the most as we go through these grievous trials. But Peter offers us a couple couple of very important truths before acknowledging those grievous trials. Notice this with me. This is fascinating. The very first thing that he says is the fact that though you rejoice in the fact of what is still yet going to come and the work that God is doing in you, he then says, though now for a little while. Notice that. For a little while. Trials are seasonal. They're temporary. There is a duration of time allotted to them. And we will get through them. Now getting through them might mean stepping out of this world and stepping into eternity with the Lord. But as I've often said on Sunday mornings, let us remember that as Christians, this is the worst it's ever going to get for us here on this earth. When we step out of this earth and we step into heaven, it's only going to get better, right? But just the opposite is true for those who don't know Christ. This is the best it will ever be for them. It will only get worse as they step out of this life and into the next. So number one, let us understand that trials are temporary. Number one, trials are temporary. Trials are temporary. Number two, these three little words are so important to our understanding of trials. If, need, be. From our perspective, it is clear that trials often are, we don't understand them from our perspective. We don't get what's happening in our lives as we're experiencing these trials. And he uses the term various trials, just as James did. They come in all different, different sizes and shapes. And as I used the illustration last week of that pastor and his wife who went to see the loom of a famous weaver, as they got there, they were astonished as they were watching this famous weaver bring this tapestry together. But from their perspective, all they saw was rough little strings hanging out and things not seeming to make any sense. And there was no texture and it was rough to the touch. And they were like, hmm, maybe he's just having a bad day. But then the tour guide took them to the other side of the loom and said, don't judge the work just yet. And as they brought the pastor and his wife to the other side of the loom, there they saw the incredible tapestry that was being created. Beautiful, gorgeous, intricate. But from the back, you would never see it. You would never understand the pattern that was being developed or the tapestry that was being created. As Christians, we often simply see things from our side. And it's rough. And there are strings sticking out. And it doesn't look like things make any sense. But from God's point of view, everything is coming together perfectly as He continues to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful way of illustrating that. These various trials are temporary. And God brings them about with purpose. If 
need be. Maybe you've, you know, walked off the path a little bit. God needs to bring you back. Brings a trial into your life to draw you back onto Him. Maybe you're seeking His will and He's revealing His will to you, but you don't like the will that He's uh, revealing to you, so you resist it. Maybe God needs to get your attention because, of course, God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows what's best for us. For whatever reason, there is purpose to the sufferings in which we experience here on this earth. What may seem to simply be a random event with no meaning, no purpose, we can be confident from God's word that it has direct purpose in conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say that these trials, in verse 7, that grieve us for this moment are actually working in us as need be, for a little while, for the purpose, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God working in you for the purpose of perfecting you, for the purposes of glorifying your heavenly Father, who is in heaven. There's a difference between the words trial and testing in the Greek. The word trial simply means an examination. The circumstance in which we find ourselves that is leading us to suffering and to difficulty and so forth is actually an examination. Now, who is profiting from that examination? Well, it certainly isn't God. He knows us inside and out, right? He knows our hearts. He knows every hair on our head that is numbered. He knows every tear that we've ever cried He has in a bottle. He knows us personally and intimately. The trial is for us to truly see where our heart is at and what may need correction in our heart. But that trial then leads to testing. And this isn't an issue of pass or fail. This is an issue of refinement. A refining fire in the life of the individual these tests, these moments. And we use the example of someone who is purifying gold as they would heat gold to the point that the impurities would rise to the surface called dross, dross, D-R-O-S-S, dross. And then they would swipe it off. Now, what I realized this week, what I read this week, and this is beautiful, that when they did this in Eastern cultures, the goldsmiths, would liquefy the metal and continue doing so. They would continue liquefying it. They would continue heating it. As the dross raised to the surface, they would keep scraping it off and they would continue to do so until, guess what? They saw their reflection in the pure gold. God is swiping the dross of your life so he sees his reflection in you. What a beautiful illustration that is. And that's what testing does. It refines us. It brings the impurities to the surface. God sweeps them off and He continues to do so until He sees His image, the image of Jesus Christ in you. What a beautiful thing. And this is more important and more valuable 
than anything that we find here on this earth. That we may come to the point of being praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's really important that we understand that the work that God is doing in us, He is doing in in us for this purpose. He's doing it in us so He can bring about our conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, In whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is the way Peter is bringing about the idea of you are a progression. You are a work in progress. This is what God is doing in your life to bring about those things in which he desires to bring about. But the genuineness of one's faith is something that Jesus warned us about from the very beginning. Remember in the parable of the sower, he said that many would respond to the gospel. Many would uh, walk for a certain period of time with those who believe. And we see this throughout the Gospels over and over and over again. But yet, something happens. And we're reminded of this in Mark chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. But notice, and they have no root in themselves. And so endure for a time. But afterwards, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. There will be those who will abandon Christ because they never truly were of Him as soon as they are persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus warned us from the very beginning. But for you and I who are in Christ... The trials, the examinations, and the testings that we experience and endure here in this world bring about that incredible transformation conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. I'd like to read this to you if I may. The rejoicing is not because one enjoys persecution or because one denies the reality of the pain and suffering or because one ignores it, as in the apathia of the Stoics, they would just rather ignore it. Rather, it is because Christians have has an eschatological perspective, meaning we're looking forward to the end result of the, what, the work that God is doing in us for His glory. That is, that he or she understands that at the end of the age, God will pay back each person For the evil that they have suffered as a result of their allegiance to Him, therefore they can rejoice now in anticipation of the coming heavenly reward that they will receive. In the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, Job says something remarkable. In his limited understanding of God, in the limited revelation in which Job had, As he went through the difficulties in which he personally experienced, he concluded this. 
but he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. I leave you with these words from Pastor Warren Worsby. We must keep in mind that God's plans, I'm sorry, that all God plans and performs here is in preparation for what He has in store for us in heaven. He is preparing us for the life and service yet to come. Nobody yet knows all that is in store for us in heaven, but this we do know. Life today is a school in which God trains us for our future ministry or service in eternity. This explains the presence of trials in our lives. They are some of God's tools and textbooks in the school of Christian experience. As we go through trials, they are not random. The various trials that we may experience are not purposeless. But as we go through various trials, they are temporary, number one. And number two, they are brought about as need be in the life of those who love and follow Jesus Christ. They have a purpose to them. And when it's all said and done, we, like Job, will say, now we get it. That all I have gone and experienced and all that I have suffered, though now I see, I shall come forth as gold.